0: Welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Blake McVeigh, and I'm delighted to welcome to the program Jerry Mitchell. Jerry worked for more than 30 years as an investigative reporter for the newspaper The Clarion Ledger in Jackson, Mississippi. His stories helped put four Klansmen and a serial killer behind bars. Mitchell is the winner of multiple national awards, including a MacArthur Genius Grant, and has been a Pulitzer Prize finalist. Last year, he left The Clarion Ledger, to found the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting to train a new generation of investigative reporters. Today, we'll hear about his new book, Race Against Time, which is published by Simon & Schuster. Welcome to the show, Jerry. It's good to be with you. Your latest work begins with you volunteering to cover what was apparently seen as a low-priority story concerning a movie premiere from what appears to have been a simple kind of a local interest angle.
1: Well, it was actually a voluntary assignment, you know, the editor held up the movie tickets and said, who wants to go cover this? And You know, basically, I'll go cover it, you know, and seemed like a break from the courts. (laughs) And so I went to cover it and had no idea it would kind of change the trajectory of my life.
0: Tell us what that movie was and why it became important. Well, I went to the movie
1: Mississippi Burning, which actually is a fictional movie, but it's about real life occurrences about the Ku Klux Klan's killings of three civil rights workers in the summer of 1964 and their names were James Cheney, Andy Goodman, Mickey Schwerner. And they were killed because the Klan was kind of preaching that this was going to be an invasion and all that kind of stuff. So they killed them, buried their bodies 15 feet down in an earthen dam and really a miracle they were ever found. It was like 44 days between that the killings and their bodies actually being found by the FBI, if not for the tip of Mr. X, they would have never been found. And so I saw it with two FBI agents who investigated the case and journalists who covered the case. The thing that stunned me was nobody had ever been prosecuted for murder. And I just couldn't wrap my head around that. I was like, well, wait a minute, what, what do you mean? Like this is a triple murder <laughs> And nobody's ever been prosecuted for murder in this case. How does that happen?
0: You know, So that, that was kind of what I walked away with. You say you saw the movie with FBI agents? I
1: did. They were there at the, at the press premiere, too. They were invited by Bill Miner. He invited Roy K. Moore, who was the head of the FBI in Mississippi in 1964, and then Jim Ingram, who worked on that case as it you know,
0: went to trial. So you see the movie with the FBI agents, and that sparked you to start asking questions about why nothing had ever been done. Exactly. So early on in the process of investigating these cold cases, which is what you eventually started doing, correct? Correct. What drove you to continue digging despite such long odds of ever having any sort of positive outcome? Or did you even think there might be a potential positive outcome? What, What did you hope to accomplish?
1: You know, initially, it was just this idea of they should reopen this case. You know, I, I don't think I saw beyond that at that moment. I mean, it, it, you know, the odds were literally more than a million to one against the case, the mega Revers case, which really was the first one that was seriously looked at, being reopened and reprosecuted. And to me, it was just one story led to the next. I mean, I kind of think of it in those terms. I, I wasn't necessarily thinking long-term at that point at all and certainly not beyond that case.
0: We touched on it just a minute ago a a little bit, but you had been basically the court beat reporter. Yeah,
1: the Clarion-Ledger one and I I was
0: being regularly scooped by my competition for the Jackson Daily News. Do you feel like that was a a big reason that led you to ask questions or do you think you would have asked questions no matter what? I think I would ask questions no matter what. I, I think it just it just kind of stuck in my craw that these guys got away with murder. How did you decide where to begin with, with any of these cold cases, whether it's the first one from the Mississippi Burning yeah. uh, incident or, or any of the others? How, how do you well, start your attack?
1: I, I, I guess the advantage I had was the fact that I was a court reporter. And so I covered courts. So I had some sense of... The evidence that it might take to be able to reopen a case, to re-prosecute a case. I had some sense of that. So it wasn't just randomly. And the first thing you do in a criminal case is you see what, what do the investigative files, what do the police files show? In that case, and in the Meg Revers case, what do the court transcripts show? And and so those are the kinds of things that then allow you to begin to kind of piece the case back together. I mean, I know this all now, but it, at the time, it was just
0: literally almost like a piece at a time. Piece by piece, like a puzzle. That's exactly what it is. It's a it's a puzzle. It seems like one of the most key pieces of the puzzle was a cooperation from victims' families. Could you have achieved Absolutely. any measure of success without their cooperation?
1: No, not at all. Well, for example, if they'd been opposed to it, if they had not wanted justice for their families or said understandably, you know, this is too painful for us. We've already been through enough. We don't want to go through this again. They could have said that. Murley ever said, Widow of Medgarover said, no, I, after she read my story, she said, this case ought to be prosecuted.
0: It did take some convincing though, right? I mean, you, you had to prove to people that you were trustworthy. Yes.
1: Well, yes. You're talking about from that perspective. Yes, Absolutely. I'm a white guy, you know. <laughs> if you can't tell that uh, from the, the air, south. from the south, and I've yeah, got the accent, you might be. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, I I I I have all those kind of boxes, and so uh, they certainly could have mistrusted me, and but I think over time they trusted me, and then once I kind of had done one case, and I kind of had the reputation for doing those cases, and, and then the family started contacting me.
0: Actually, started working in reverse. So for this particular book, why were these cases chosen? Well, they were the four major
1: cases that I worked on. I mean, I worked on a number of other cases, in fact, far more than four other ones. But these are really the ones that I would kind of dedicate a tremendous amount of time to. The book spans 16 years. You know, it was kind of the limit. I mean, four cases ended up being kind of the limit as well. My original plan was to have this about 100-page epilogue that I was going to try to stuff all the other cases in some form in there, and my editor wisely said, no, I don't think so.
0: Do you have any plans to write or publish anything about any of your other?
1: I'll see what my publisher says. You know, obviously it probably depends on what happens with this book if, you know, We sell a few dozen copies. They might not be so inclined to ask
0: that. (laughs) So there's no one or maybe two that you feel a little bit regretful that maybe they didn't make the cut this particular time around?
1: Oh, yeah. I I, I wish there were several that I wanted to talk about. The at Till Case, of course, which I've written extensively about. The Clyde Kennard case, which people don't know. But now someone I know is writing a book about that, which I'm very grateful. I'm happy to cooperate with them about it.
0: So let's talk a little bit about you actually interviewing people during the 16 year span. That's right. What are the rules of engagement <laughs> when you're talking to someone who not only appears to be lying repeatedly, of course, and and pretty unashamedly, but also is likely antagonistic if not potentially violent toward you? Yeah, true, true.
1: Back in those days, you can't tell now cuz I'm I'm old now, but I looked like Opie, you know what I mean? I kind of had that Opie look. And so I think I just looked harmless, and I was I had the accent. I mean, I took some of these Klan guys out to eat barbecue and catfish and, mm-hmm. and all those things. I'm a big believer in that. I, I think you want to get people relaxed. You want to get them comfortable. And, you know, maybe you go interview them in their home and where, wherever you can kind of get them to be comfortable. Like I said, it's kind of the opposite of Mike Wallace. Instead of coming in with guns blazing, you know, I'm going to get you, you know, and, and looking for a got gotcha you moment. It's amazing what happens when you do the opposite. When you say, I, I want to hear your story. And it's so fascinating because so often everybody wants to tell their story, whether a clansmen or whoever it is, especially as people get toward the end of their life. They want to tell their story. And I'm happy to listen. And I'm sincere in that. I really want to know.
0: You know, if nothing else, what made them racist? As you went through and you were able to get through to a lot of these people that, I mean, literally were were dangerous. Right. It would seem to me that the Klan would have some sort of secrecy pact. Correct. And that it it surprised me that you were not really on any significant level kind of blackballed by, you know, the Brotherhood or whatever they want to call themselves.
1: Well, you know, and it is weird. I don't know. It's like this was pre-internet. So it's almost like they didn't put two and two together. I know Egrey Killen, who was basically the guy who orchestrated the killing of the three civil rights workers, said to me at one point, "There's some guy in Jackson just keeps stirring things up and stirring (laughs) things up and stirring things up. And
0: I just didn't have the heart to tell him it was me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I was— struck by one thing in particular that he said. uh, I believe it was your first phone conversation with Edgar Ray Killen. He told you, this is a quote from him, from the book, I don't believe in murder. I believe in self-defense. Yeah. What do you think he meant by that? Well, it's justifying the killing, I
1: thought. And Bowers made a very similar remark in his long interview that I was able to get a copy of, you know, said something along the lines of, you know, is is it okay to kill someone? Well, yes, if you're trying to protect your way of life, essentially was what he was saying. So your culture, your way of life. So these guys justify these things. To me, that's the interesting part of it. How do they get around that? You know, they claim to be Christians, but obviously if they really believe that there's something and the scripture says, "Thou shall not kill," right? You know. So how do you work around that? Well, if you believe it's self-defense, then you're justified. You're okay. You know, that's okay. That's not a problem.
0: So he would say he's defending his race against the defending encroachment his country. Of... No, and not even his
1: race. He'd say he's defending Mississippi. He's defending, you know, the culture. Culture. Yeah, absolutely. White race, I mean Beckwith would, would have said white race, absolutely.
0: So there are multiple instances in, it seems like all of your stories, of former clansmen testifying against their old mates under oath. Why do you think someone would go so far as to join the Klan, right. get involved in some sort of targeted violence or other such activities, and then just change his mind? How do you go so far and then change your mind? Well, it's a
1: great question. I think that you know, beyond these kind of things, I think people do change. I mean, I do believe that people can change, but it is a dramatic change, and you see that with Billy Roy Pitts. I think he's kind of the, the main character we would point to in that direction, that he actually, by the end of that story, that section, he actually apologizes to Mrs. Damer. He, he was the one who testified against uh, Sam Bowers in the Verna Damer case, and he ends up apologizing to her for killing her husband and asked for her forgiveness.
0: So that was a pretty striking moment, and she forgave him. A couple of things stood out to me in particular. Do you find it ironic that so often in defending themselves, Klansmen, who among you know many other features, they are an organization of macho bravado. Right, correct. Uh, do you think it's interesting that they will belittle and literally insult themselves in decidedly non-macho terms, when they're defending themselves,
1: yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I, yeah, that you would think they would go the macho, you know, right. route in their defense, but I don't know. It's very odd, and a lot of times they try to distance themselves, and they'll say, "Oh, you know, I'm."
0: No, I didn't have anything to do with that, you know, da-da-da-da-da. i am just the weak thing. guy in the background that says, exactly. go
1: get them, boys. Yeah, exactly. That was the defense lawyer saying that for Edgar A. Killen, which I, I thought that was such a telling quote, you know. It's like, if you understand the law, the law is if you are basically an accomplice before the fact, you're guilty of the same crime. It's kind of like a getaway driver for a bank robbery. Right. And if you drive them there, you have no idea. They say, oh, no, no, we're going to hurt anybody. And then they go and kill somebody. You can be charged with murder. So by by that admission, the defense lawyer, by making that admission, was basically saying his client was guilty. I know he may not have thought it in those terms, but
0: I certainly did. I think it's very similar to something else that seemed apparent to me. Sure. It seems that you know the original possibility of any of these crimes being tried was in the late 60s for the most yes. part. They weren't tried until, you know, 30-some years later. Correct. It seems like a lot of the tactics and a lot of the understanding about how things work were stuck back during that yeah, they time, were. and they they it didn't evolve at all.
1: Well, I think that was the problem. I mean, these guys didn't evolve. And, you know, you're talking about these guys that, you know, they didn't change. They weren't penitent for what they had done. They had the exact opposite mentality. It's like they justified what they did. So their strategies, even by their own lawyers, remain stuck in the 60s. You know, a tactic that would have worked back in the 60s. I know Billy Rick Pitts was testifying. They brought up about him having an extramarital affair. You know, it's kind of a funny moment in in the trial, actually. He's saying, well, you know, isn't it true your girlfriend was there? And when did she visit? And he says, well, you know, he just admitted it. I was having an affair, and if you want to know the truth... My wife visited, my girlfriend visited, but they didn't visit at the same time. So you know what I mean? <laughs> they visited at different times. And so, I mean, some of it was actually, that trial special was very funny.
0: So their tactics were so bad, there were several points at which there was unintentional humor.
1: Oh, there's a ton of it, especially in that trial, yes.
0: Well, talk a little bit about TV wrestling schedules. That's one oh, of yeah, my favorite was the, parts.
1: Is that your favorite part? Well, that was I went and interviewed uh, Bobby Cherry, who's one of the last living suspects in the Birmingham church bombing that killed the four little girls, which happened in '63. And so I went and interviewed him. I knew very little about the case. I did talk to the FBI agents before I went over, and Doug Jones. Just to get some kind of semblance of that case. And so I went over and took him and his wife out for barbecue because, you know, that's what you take Klansmen out for, I guess. But So we sat and talked, and he's like, I didn't have anything to do with that church bombing. I got home by quarter to 10 because I had to get home and watch wrestling. And he pulled out this sworn statement, the woman swore that they were watching wrestling that night. So I got back to the newspaper the next day and talked to our librarian, Susan Garcia, and said, Susan, just took with the Birmingham News since what was on TV that night. And Susan came back to me the next day and said there was no wrestling. And so it's just stunning. <laughs> it's stunning how dumb they were. And it was a, an alibi I think he
0: concocted later, obviously. So uh, it was not an alibi at the time. Because wrestling wasn't even on TV in that area for another couple yeah, of years. Yeah, it wasn't
1: even on that station.
0: It was crazy. Those are the ones you can hardly believe. Yeah. So it seems like time and being hailed as a hero by many just led to them being kind of lazy and comfortable with where they were. Absolutely. And they're arrogant,
1: too. All of them had kind of this attitude of, I'll never be
0: prosecuted, pretty much. You know, that was... Several of them seem to just be so cocky and nasty in their attitudes. Did one of them kind of stand head and shoulders above the others as far as, like, nastiness? Well, Barney D.
1: LeBeckwith, the, the man who assassinated Miguel Evers, absolutely the most racist person I ever spent serious time with. And he was like, inward this, inward that. It's so bad that it's not that I watered it down any, but I limited it. <laughs> <laughs> I know it sounds like impossible that I limited that, but I actually limited it a little bit. It just felt like, and the editor did too, you know, we, we didn't want to overdo it. And so I spent about six hours talking to him. It was getting dark, and he insisted on like walking me out to my car. And I'm like, really? Yeah, it's, that's okay. You know, I, I think I'll find my way. So he walks me out to the car anyway. He gets me out there and says, If you write positive things about white Caucasian Christians, God will bless you. If you write negative things about white Caucasian Christians, God will punish you. If God does not punish you directly, several individuals will do it for
0: him. And so his wife had made me a sandwich. I think you can guess what I did with this sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) So that brings up a good point. How have you done this work for so long and avoided actual personal injury? God's been watching out for me. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I mean, my,
1: my wife at the time was very concerned and actually said the words to me when I told her. She was eight months pregnant at the time in her defense. And Catherine was already four at that point. And so she was convinced I was going to be killed, you know, that Beckwith knew I was the one that got the case reopened. And I was saying, no, he doesn't know. How do you know? <laughs> And then finally she said, you know, if you go, I'll never forgive you. I'm like, wow, what's the response on that one? I didn't have one, really. But I thought about Megar Evers and, and you know, knew what he had done. And Merle Evers had told me that story many times, of that they kind of finally came to, you know,
0: understanding or whatever. She understood that he could be killed, and he did too. So I went. So it, it sounds like part of your motivation was to honor the sacrifices of the men who had been murdered in all of these various cases. Well, they were
1: far braver than me, what they did. And that's what I love about the book. I mean, obviously I wrote it, but I just mean these stories of courage by those that were killed, the families who persevered for justice, the authorities who made justice possible, and, and the juries as well. It's an amazing, I
0: think it's an amazing story, I really do. And that's why I wanted to write the book. I'm glad you did. It shines a light on both the good and the bad in these situations, Uh, necessarily so. And the other thing I think that's important is even though they're
1: clansmen, and, you know, it's very easy to pick them as kind of these one-dimensional cartoonish characters or caricatures. And I didn't want that. And so you see, for example, with Beckwith, who just seems so over the top, his wife walks in and he just dotes on her. And so I, I find that fascinating. I find that kind of juxtaposition of this horrible racism is coming out of his mouth, and then his wife walks in and he just dotes on her. That's fascinating to me. That's interesting to me in terms
0: of character. I had similar thoughts when I was reading those sections. To so like, oh yeah, this, this is real people. It really pointed out how horrible the crimes were, but they could also be so tender and loving. Exactly. That's the way humans are, right? They're three dimensional
1: and. I always say, and so, uh, I don't mean it flipping at all, but I always say like, "Well, I'm, I'm sure Hitler was nice to his dogs or something." You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean you know, I, I mean, you know what I mean. I mean, I mean it jokingly, but what I mean is th- these are three dimensional people.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the present and what you may have learned Absolutely. about what goes on these days. I would imagine you probably learned about current white supremacist groups. Yes, same philosophy still around. Well, would you consider the Klan? still alive and well in any form in Mississippi today? Well,
1: the Klan still exists. It's not in the same level that it was in the 60s. You know, in the 60s in Mississippi, there were thousands and thousands of Klansmen, and they had political power. I mean, governors, people running for governor wanted their support. I mean, you had that in Mississippi. Now it would be political suicide, you know what I mean? You know, Back in those days, it was good politically to be connected to the Klan, at least in certain circles. So I think that has changed. But what has not changed is that the white supremacy part of this equation, the philosophy, the belief, a lot of that is still around. Really what we're talking about, we talk about hate, but really a lot of this is what I would call fear as well. The fear of losing our way of life, whatever that is, for change to come. Beyond the racism, I see a lot, you know, as we kind of would say, this is racist or not racist or whatever. And th- think of it more broadly, fear. I mean, there's a lot of fear out there. And I'm not making a partisan comment saying this. And there are a lot of politicians that are exploiting those fears
0: that the voters have. So. I kind of fear for this country. you know, kind of the path we're going down right now. Part of that discussion that you, you don't go into great detail, but you do touch on it. I talk the about it the epilogue, decency. I do it the epilogue. And there's there's a quote from another journalist about how a decent nation would not allow. Uh, I believe it was the the Mississippi Burning crimes. Yes, that's they would yeah. not allow that to happen yeah. and go unpunished. Exactly. So, do you feel that? decency is still in question in this nation today.
1: Unfortunately, right now, I mean, given the political climate, it's not a good time in our history. I mean, the present is not. I'm hoping that we can get beyond this. We're just fracturing along racial lines. We're fracturing along partisan lines. We're fracturing along about every line imaginable. And it's one of those things that scorched earth. Either you believe what I believe, or it's scorched earth. And when you have that kind of philosophy, it's going to lead to divisiveness. Obviously, it's going—you don't have any common ground. So that's what I fear for this nation. And fear and hate play a role in that. There's an excellent book on this. It's called "Faces of the Enemy" by Sam Keane with a K. If anybody's interested in reading it, it came out many years ago, but he's he's updated it since. And the whole idea is before. You know, we, we hate, we fear, we, we, we dehumanize. And so when we dehumanize other people, they're monsters, they're insects, or whatever they are, then we have permission to destroy them, either figuratively or, or literally. So you see, five years ago, uh, a young man, young white man, walks in an African-American church in Charleston. And they welcome, and he mows them down, kills nine beautiful people. You see the, what is it, Pittsburgh with a synagogue. Someone said he wanted to destroy the Jews, walked in the synagogue, killed 11 people. El Paso wanted to preserve the white race, you know, walked into the Walmart, you know, and just started killing people What dozens, you know. It's just awful. It's just awful, all because just what we're talking about, that fear, that fear we're not going to survive, or we're being attacked, just like the Klan did in Mississippi in the 60s. We're being invaded, you know? You don't have to go that far back in time. I mean, this is the part of Klan history that people don't talk about or think about as much. There was also a resurrection of the Klan in the teens and 20s in this nation, and there were 4 million Klan members in this country. It was a nationwide organization. They marched down Pennsylvania Avenue. There's even video. Just go on YouTube and you can look at it. Men, women, children, open faces. It was, they weren't closed faces and they were considered quirky or whatever. But, but and what was their platform? They opposed Catholics, they opposed Jews,
0: and they opposed immigrants. This seems like a good time for a quote from your epilogue that I thought was very okay, great. relevant. You say, I've been told time and again to let the past be. But I have long found that a true account of a painful past does more good than a murky optimism. So what good does a true account of a painful past actually do? Well, I really believe personally
1: that in the end it can help us heal. You know, I think you've got to have truth. There's just no question about this. You've got to have truth. That's kind of the way I think of my reporting. You've got to have truth to get to justice. Or without the truth, you'll never arrive at justice. And that there are times, obviously, even in these cases, many more of these cases, where justice isn't possible. Like the, the window is closed. You can still tell the truth. So some of these families, not only was their loved ones stolen from them, they don't know what happened. They don't know the truth. And so I really view that as a role of us as journalists, that we can come in and at least help the families know the truth. So that, that work kind of continues. And uh, we're trying to continue it with our Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting and our nonprofit and, and other things. And we're dealing with other issues as well.
0: That's a perfect place to end this because that was going to be my last question. It was just to ask you a little bit about the work yeah, you were,
1: we're hoping we, to do. We've got a cold case we're looking at. We are looking at these juveniles who've been sentenced to life sentences. We've spent the whole, since January of last year, investigating prisons in Mississippi. Basically warned the state officials that this is going to blow up, that the gangs were in control and and nothing changed, nothing happened, and then they blew up, so uh, we take no no pleasure in that, you know, we didn't want that to happen, but when your vacancy rate for your guards is 50%, you're kind of saying to the gangs, well, you know, you can be in charge, because you don't have any people to
0: watch them. Well, thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks very much, appreciate it very much. Jerry Mitchell is the author of Race Against Time, which is published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Blake McVeigh, and this is Book Talk.
1: Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee. 38111 or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0
0: license for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work. But there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or
1: restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.